Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Paul Nepper, and today we'll be talking to Pete Croato about his book, From Hang Time to Primetime, Business, Entertainment, and the Birth of the Modern-Day MBA. Pete has been published in many news outlets, including the New York Times and Slam Magazine. This is Pete's first book. Pete, welcome to the show. Thank you, Paul. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. Um, I wonder if you could start us off by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself. Yeah, certainly. Um, I've been a freelance writer um, since 2006. Uh, Before then, kind of had a circuitous route uh, to get to freelance writing and sports writing. Uh, I graduated in 2000 from the College of New Jersey, Um, graduated with a degree in journalism, professional writing. And after that, I spent a calamitous year uh, as a uh, as a news reporter for the uh, the Courier News in Bridgewater, New Jersey. It's a Gannett paper at the time had about 40,000 40, circulation. So I was the Hunterdon County uh, reporter there. So basically, I had to cover a 500 square mile county um, on my own. So that was a real uh, that was a real toboggan ride. So I did that for I did that for a year until I just I really I think I couldn't take it anymore. My editors couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> so I I quit kind of in a in a just in a just in frustration. And after that, I spent about a year I spent a year, two years working in bookstores. I worked at a bookstore called Pyramid Books in Metuchen, New Jersey, which is no longer there. Then I went to Borders and was freelancing a little bit. Then I spent three and a half, almost four years working for a trade publication in East Brunswick, New Jersey uh, called VRM Inc. And that covered, uh, that still covers, pardon me, the natural products industry. So cover, that covers vitamins, supplements, things like that. So I did that for three and a half to four years. And I was part of an editorial staff of three that put out 28 magazines a year. So 20 issues a year over three magazines. So it was just a lot of work, but it, but it taught me how to, how to write long features. It taught me how to do a lot of things on my own because there was not a lot of help. It was pretty, pretty, um, it, it was really intense. So we all had to pitch in. So I was answering phones, ordering office supplies and writing like three, 2000 word articles a month on top of editing, you know, you name it. So after a while, as you might imagine, that got to be pretty, pretty intense and pretty draining. So I was turning about to turn 30 and I thought, you know, I I don't, I feel like I'm not really doing as much as I should. I feel like I'm leaving something on the table. So I talked about it with my family. I thought about it long and hard and, you know, I just wasn't happy. So I decided to leave. I didn't have a I didn't have any writing job lined up, but I did have a a, a book selling job lined up at Borders in 
East Brunswick, which is where I lived, which is where the magazine was based. So I decided to quit my job, work at Borders and try freelancing. So 14 years later, here I am, you know, writing, having written a book and now writing for some outlets that quite frankly, I'm can't believe I'm writing for. So <laughs> it's been a real, it's been a real, um, it, it's been a real journey to get here. Like it, it, there was no, there really wasn't a straight line for me. Like there was no rocket ship to the moon. It was just, I would say a series of failed launches until finally, you know, getting onto finally until finally I, I reached some sort of orbit where I am. I have no idea, but I, I at least I, I think I'm in the air at this point. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, but yeah, that's, it's a pretty, yeah, it's like 14, it's a 14 year journey from, or not actually, no, wow. 20 years, pardon me to get from uh, college to, to the book coming out. Right. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, so of course this, this, uh, this book is about the um, kind of the explosion of the NBA and mm-hmm. mostly the 1980s. Um, I wonder if you could kind of set the scene for our listeners by telling them a little bit about the state of the NBA in, in say the late 70s. Yeah, the late the NBA in the late 70s was really it, it was a sport that was in trouble. Um, it, it, you know, it had a lot of it had a, a big image problem, and part of it was, I think the social attitudes of Americans, they were, you know, it was the NBA as it is now, as it is now was a predominantly black sport that made a predominantly white television audience, very uncomfortable. Uh, it also, the, the league also had a big problem with, um, this went on in the 1980s with and the, whether the perception was real, what, pardon me, whether it was real or perceived it, you know, there was a, you know, there, a lot of the players were thought to be on drugs. And that was a, you know, I think a lot of Americans were not particularly keen on watching a sport with with featuring men that who, who they were not familiar with, uh, who were not part of their everyday life, um, who may have had, you know, may have been um, on drugs. Um, but it wasn't only that. I'm, I'm, I'm simplifying the point. The NBA also was a sport that didn't really have a it didn't have any characteristics. If you think of if you think of Major League Baseball, there is this aura behind it. It is it is America's pastime. It is a game that, you know, your grandfather watched on the you know, or or listened to on the radio with Red Barber call, you know, make calling calling the games, or Harry Carey, or um or or uh, or um you know or uh, or whomever. I mean, it's there was a tradition there. It, it grew up in cities. It was played in it was it was played in ball fields and and you know open fields. And football had this reputation because of television um, of being sort of you know of increasingly becoming America's game, a, a game that you know you spent your Sundays watching. Basketball didn't have anything, any of that, and the NBA didn't have any of that. There was no tradition to speak of there was no characteristics that made you think of hey you know this is this you know when i think of basketball i think of you know being with my be, being with my dad watching the knicks or or watching the kings or whomever there was nothing there was nothing like that as i said earlier rather ineloquently i think there was a real problem with 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 perception there were a lot of black there were a lot of black pet players a lot of black players and at the time america 
mainstream America was not exactly on board with blacks in, I think, big in big roles in entertainment or in society. It was it was an era where where blacks were still considered to be militant. Um, they were considered to be outspoken. It was not something that was um, it was not a good era or not a productive era for the NBA because there was this stigma, this unfair stigma, I should say, about the black athlete. So in the mid-1970s into the late 1970s and beyond, I think, there was a major problem. There was no, the, the NBA didn't have a tradition because it was only 30 years old and there was nothing, there was no, no one had cultivated a tradition or an image for the NBA. And the NBA also had few, if any, stars that Ma and Pa America could relate to. So those were that was the NBA state in in the mid to 1970s. It was it was it was a sport that was looking for an identity and looking for an audience. Right. Yeah, a pre-Cosby show, right? Yeah, I think a absolutely. lot I think our generation younger generations don't understand how uh absent African Americans were from from mainstream American culture. Yes. Um Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I mean that's and that's a that's a big point. I mean, you have to remember. I mean, I, we're both the same age. So, in the 1980s, the the mid 1980s, you had Eddie Murphy coming into coming, who is you know a, a huge movie star. I, I don't think it's. I think it's. I think people forget how big a movie star Eddie Murphy was. Um, you had Bill Cosby before, you know, right. before <laughs> before before his his awful behavior was revealed. And you have Michael Jackson, the same thing. You know, these were these these men all came along in the early to mid nineteen eighties. But before that, there really wasn't anything like that. There really wasn't a an African American star who had that kind of crossover appeal. Um, and there certainly wasn't any basketball star who had that mainstream appeal. Um, especially before 1976 um, when Julius Irving comes onto the scene. So yeah, the NBA was really in a, was really in a bind. I I don't think, I don't think it's much, I don't think it's an understatement to say that the NBA was, if it wasn't on death's door, it was maybe walking down that hallway. Right. Wow. Yeah. And as you pointed out in the book, I think if there was one crossover star, maybe, you know, pre 1980s, maybe it was OJ Simpson. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, an- another guy who <laughs> the bottom, <laughs> the bottom kind of fell out there, but mm-hmm. anyway, um, you know, Pete, you really pulled me into this book yeah. in the introduction. When you talk about, you know, you get right into the kind of the oversimplified narrative of bird magic stirred Jordan. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I love how you wrote that as if it was one word. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, and I, I'm a huge fan of basketball and basketball history, and and even I have, have you know had fallen victim to that narrative. I think it's I think it's something that as people and as a society we tend to do with movements of, of any kind. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I I taught U.S. history for a few years, and um and I was always struck by that when I taught the civil rights movement, and I tried to impart that on my students. You know, we taught it, and mm-hmm. even in the textbook, it, it was very much. Rosa, Martin, Malcolm. Yep. You know, and that yep. was, and that, and bam, civil rights movement. And mm-hmm. I always tried to explain that there were larger social, economic, political uh, issues that, and movements and forces at stake that, that drove that to a large extent. 
And, um, and I think you did a great job of capturing that in the book. You know, I, I used to say to my students, I said, if, if, if Dr. King had come along 50 years earlier, he may have had a substantial impact in, in the African-American mm-hmm. community and maybe even beyond. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't getting the civil rights laws passed. He wasn't getting the voting rights laws passed. There were a lot of uh, forces, other forces at play. And the same thing could be said about Michael Jordan. Had he come along, say, 25 years earlier, it was just a different world. Sure. Um, and uh, coincidentally, I think I think a common thread with both of them is the explosion of television in, in different ways. But, yeah. Uh, so I, I, I want to talk about some of those forces. Absolutely. But I do want to talk about a couple of the individuals mm-hmm. um, because they were so important. And I'd like to start with somebody I didn't know a great deal about. And that's uh, Larry O'Brien. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about his impact on the league. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad you brought Larry O'Brien up because I think he is, I think he is, he he doesn't get enough credit for putting the NBA on its path. And I think a lot of this book deals with optics uh, and marketing and how and the look of things. Larry O'Brien doesn't have doesn't enjoy David Stern's reputation as an NBA commissioner. Um, and with good reason, because David Stern, I'm sure we'll get into this later. He played such a role in turning the NBA into an international force. But what Larry O'Brien did was he gave the league in 1975, he gave, he gave the league respectability. Larry O'Brien, for those who, who don't, who don't know him. And I quite, quite frankly, I didn't know a lot about him either before I started writing this book and researching it. Larry O'Brien was a, was a democratic, um, uh, icon. Uh, uh, he's an icon in the in the Democratic Party. He was he basically helped JFK reach national prominence. He was part of the Irish Mafia, the JFK's inner circle that you know w- that were his advisors and his his and the, the the men that made him JFK. So J- so Larry O'Brien uh, brought JFK to the White House when JFK was assassinated. He took. He was part of the Lyndon B. Johnson administration, and then after that, he was chairman of the Democrat uh, Democratic National Party for I think two terms. So he was a big deal in in the in the in the in the nation's political fabric. He was he was as Pat, as um, Pat Williams, the GM of the seventy sixers, told me he was a big deal. It was a big deal to get Larry O'Brien. So when Larry O'Brien takes this job as NBA commissioner in nineteen seventy five, it's almost a step down for him. You know, now, I mean, the, becoming NBA commissioner now, or the or or the commissioner in any of the major sports, that is a that's a feather in your cap. That is that is a career highlight. Back in 1975, that wasn't the case. The, the NBA had to practically beg Larry O'Brien to take the job. So when Larry O'Brien comes in, you the NBA gets an infusion of gravitas, which it desperately needed. It needed somebody who meant business. So even though Larry O'Brien didn't do, I, I don't think did as, didn't do nearly as much as David Stern. There were two things that he did. There was first was the was the again this image this this image of of respect. The second thing was he allowed he hired David Stern, who was outside counsel for the NBA for a number of years. He hired David Stern to work for the NBA, and he gave he gave David Stern full reign to do what to 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 act how he wanted to do. So Larry, Larry O'Brien could be the figurehead. He could be the person who came in and 
sat in on negotiations, and he was crucial in getting the ABA to quote unquote merge with the NBA. But I think Larry O'Brien's biggest asset was he hired David Stern full time, and he basically said to he basically let David Stern run wild. So while Larry O'Brien was doing the things that an that a CEO would do as the face of the company, Larry, David Stern was making sure the television contracts were, were fair. He was he was meeting with uh, folks at USA Network to make sure that the coverage was perfect. He was he was hiring people to set up the next wave of leadership. He was hiring Rick, Rick Welts, who's now, um, I believe he's the CEO of the Warriors. He was hiring Bill Marshall, who made who turned NBA apparel into this giant, giant marketing cog in the NBA's machine. So Larry O'Brien's role in the ascension of the NBA cannot be overstated. Even though you don't read much about him, even though he is very much, I think, a footnote in the NBA's history, his his role in, in what the NBA is now is absolutely crucial. Yeah, I, I, I have to say, after reading the book, I felt a little better about him having the trophy named after him. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, he, I, again, you know, that... That was, uh, yeah, I mean, I think he, he doesn't get enough credit. And I, I've said this to other people. We've all worked for bosses who want, it, who want to take the credit, who are egomaniacs, who, sure. are, who, always, who micromanage. Larry O'Brien's greatest asset was that he, he, hired, he, he let people that were talented do the work. He trusted them to he trusted them get things done. And he did that with not only David Stern, both Russ Granick, who was the deputy commissioner for for many years, so the two of that, so that's a great gift as an as a leader. If you can say, all right, well, you know what, this person here is really really good at these things that I either don't have time for, or I don't fully understand, or I'm not really interested in. So I'm going to let these people do their thing, and I'm going to handle the things that I know how to do or that I want to do. And Larry, I mean, and that's really is if you think about it, that's a that's a pretty that's a pretty good skill to have. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you brought up David Stern, and mm-hmm. and uh, we, we have to talk about him because um, <laughs> yes, we do. I mean, not only uh, was he so influential and important to the history of the league, mm-hmm. um, but I, I find him to be a fascinating figure. Somebody somebody needs to write the definitive biography of David Stern one day. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, um, I guess, his vision for the league and and how he went about implementing it. Uh, yeah, and I agree with you about David Stern. I, I think a, a biography would be an amazing um, would be an amazing read. Excuse me. Unfortunately, he's not going to. He, he was he was never going to write his memoirs even when he even before he passed away. That was never on his agenda. Anyway, about David Stern's vision. <sighs> He, he saw the league as more than just a basketball league. He saw the league as something as the best way I can put it is that he saw it as a machine with a ton of cogs working in concert. So, you know, it, it, it didn't, the NBA just couldn't be a top down organization. It couldn't have one, one person ruling over everything. Everyone had to work together. So the players had to work with the league they had to work with the owners. And it, that meant everything. It meant everything from, I think from the from the CBA, the collective bargaining agreement, the 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 drug deal in 1983, the drug uh, the, the drug policy, but also marketing, apparel, all they, there had to be there had to be synergy, there had to be cooperation, uh, especially when 
the NBA was in, was in such shot was on such um, fragile footing for so many years. So he, but he, but more than that, he saw the league as being an entertainment entity. He, his, his, a great phrase, I think that was said to me by Arlene Waltman, who was um, worked at the NBA for a number of years. She said, you know, at one point, you know, David called us into his office and he said, you know, you guys, you, you guys, you don't get it. You don't get it. We're Disney. So we're, so it wasn't just a basketball league. It was providing entertainment for the broadest possible audience. It was having the merchandise, the videotapes. It was having arenas that were really theme parks with performers and with fancy lights and, and with eternity, you know, and, and, and making it more than just a basketball game. So he understood that you have to attract the broadest possible audience. The diehards will, 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 will be there no matter what. Diehards like you and me. I mean, we'll, I don't know about you, but if, if someone gave me tickets to an NBA game right now, I would go, I would sit on a folding chair with a cup of water and, a, and you know, and nothing else. I mean, I, I love the game. But for the people that are borderline fans, the people that are not sports fans, quote unquote, or basketball fans, they needed more. And they needed they needed to they needed to go to a game that was going to be more than a game. It was going to be an event. It was going to be a spectacle. And David Stern understood that better than anybody because he wasn't he wasn't tied down to, to, to tradition. The NBA didn't have tradition. There wasn't you know it didn't have the shield like the NFL has. It didn't have um, the step the status of being America's pastime. David Stern could write his own ticket and his ticket was, you know what? We are going to be entertainment. We are going to be, we're going to give, we are going to give the fans what they want, but we're also going to make this enjoyable to again, the widest possible audience. And he could do that because again, the, the league, there was nothing to lose. You know, there was, there was nothing to lose at the NBA. I mean, you, you could, you could, if you worked at the NBA in the early eighties, mid 1980s, even in the late 1980s, if you had an idea, it was fair game. Try it out. There was, there was no such thing as tradition. And the one thing David Stern hated to hear was this is how we've always done it. If, if that was an excuse for why they're not doing something to him, that was, that was an, to him, that was inexcusable. If an idea had credit, if an idea worked, or idea or, or an idea had merit, go for it. And you know what? If it doesn't work, guess what? We'll we'll try something new. So, and the NBA, I think, has that reputation to this day. Um, if you look at the bubble, I, I think if you look at how how baseball and um, uh, football have handled the pandemic, it's very much been it's very much been in a way that is. How do I even put it? It, it there, there's no there's no imagination to it. There's no there's no flexibility. With the NBA, the bubble was ingenious because it was it not only was did it did it keep everyone safe, which was the top priority, but I think it also but it also was it also went against the tradition. You know, oh, we're going to have home games and we're going to travel and we're going to no, we're going to put everyone in a bubble. This is how it's going to work. And we're we'll, we're just gonna we're we're gonna just deal with it. So the NBA to this day, as a source told me, is always about pushing things to the cutting edge, pushing not not adhering to tradition, and that that started with David Stern, and continues and continues to this day. Yeah, I I, th- I think that was very well said. Oh, thanks. Um, I want to ask you about uh, 
The ABA. Yeah. I, 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 I love the ABA. You know, I, I mean, uh, Terry Pluto's Loose Balls is such a classic book, and I love learning about the history of that league. So I want to ask you, what impact do you think um, the ABA-NBA, as you said in quotes, merger mm-hmm. had, had on the NBA? Oh, it's huge. It, it was absolutely huge. I, and I, I still think the ABA doesn't get its due. Um, it's funny. I, I think... Who did I talk to? Well, I, I think Julius, or Julius Irving mentioned that he was, I think to this day, Julius Irving is still angry that his points from the ABA don't count toward his official points total. Um, he, he, you know, he, he's very, he's very upset about that. I think he, there was an article in the New York times a few years ago, where we talked about that. Um, but I'm, I'm going off track. Um, to me, the ABA, the ABA, NBA, the, the ABA's absorption into the NBA is, absolutely critical to the NBA we see today for, for a few reasons. First, the ABA was all about, um, was all about entertaining the fans. I mean, if you, if you look at, if you read loose balls, which is an amazing book and I urge everybody who is listening to this podcast to read loose balls after you, after you read my book, um, or before it's your preference. But, uh, anyway, the ABA, you know, had these crazy halftime acts. They had, you know, they had, um, ball girls in bikinis. They had all these weird, wonderful, quirky things because they had to get fans into the into the arenas. But beyond that, they also had they also had a, a few great innovations. They had the three point line, and what the three point line did was not only you know add a, a add you know more points to the game, but it also opened the game up. So a pl- so players like George Gervin and Julius Irving could take it to the hoop and be imaginative and. and and do all these things on the open floor. I mean, the the ABA, ABA was a running gun game, so so you had you know a lot of taking to the hole. You didn't have, you didn't have a lot of big men, so there wasn't the low post play that that the NBA that the NBA was in love with at the time. The ABA was all running gun, fast breaks, three pointers, and also just you know finding imaginative imaginative ways to put the ball in the hole. So you have that style of play, but not only that, you have these players. You have a great crop of players coming in, and it's not just Julius Irving and George Gervin. You have Dan Issel, Bobby Jones, uh, Maurice Lucas, Artis Gilmore, James Silas. Um, I could go uh, George McGinnis. Uh, I could go on and on. So you have all these young, and that's that's a, that's the appropriate word here: young, exciting players who come into the NBA in 1976, and they set the tone. And they also, and Howard Bryan pointed this out to me when I talked to him. Julius Irving's arrival also made stylistic basketball acceptable. I mean, that's the important thing. All these guys coming in, headlined by Julius Irving, turned made stylistic basketball, which is you know the dunks and the and the razzle dazzle. That made that normal in the NBA. So you cannot underestimate how um, how important the ABA's arrival was to the NBA because it just it gave it an infusion of young talent. It it gave. It introduced a style of play that you still see to this day, especially with a three-point shot. You know, I don't think any team now, any team that doesn't rely on the three-point shot as part of their strategy, they're they're going to be they're going to be in the lottery come come June. But it but it also so those are the I mean those are the two, I mean those are the big things. I mean the three-point line, obviously, the style of play, the players, and yeah, I'm trying to think. I mean the, those are the those are the three those are the three big things. I think those. Those are, you know, yeah, I'm going, I'm going off the rails here, but, um, but the, but yeah, the, you can, but the ABA was absolutely crucial to the NBA. I mean, I think you can even say that the ABA saved the NBA. 
You know, I mean, there's, you know, there's, because again, I mean, if you don't have Julius Irvin, who then becomes the ambassador for the league for so many years before Michael, before Bird and Magic arrive, that's another important component of this too, was just how important Julius Irving was to the NBA who needed a matinee idol because he was their matinee idol for a number of years. Yeah. And I I love, there's a great, a great line in the book Mm -hmm. um, about, about Dr. J mm-hmm. and uh, I hope I get this right, but sure. it was, it was basically, um, I think a reporter asked, I think it was Butch Beard. Uh, why, why Julius Irvin didn't have the same impact as Michael Jordan. And, and the answer was television. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, that's a great way to segue into, uh, could you talk a little bit about what, what was television coverage of the NBA like in the, say, in you know, the, the early 80s, late 70s or early 80s, and how did that change over the next decade? Uh, it was uninventive in, in the early 1980s. It, it was just, it was very, very stay-in. And what, what, what prompted the change uh, in coverage was, excuse me, in 1982, uh, CBS Sports renews, renews the NBA contract reluctantly. It wasn't something they were, they were particularly enthused to do. Uh, but, but at the time, uh, Neil Pilson, who's then the president of CBS Sports, gives hands over the telecast of the NBA to, to a, a young producer named Ted Shaker. And Ted Shaker sees an opportunity with the coverage. He doesn't want to do the same old stuff. So what he does is is, is just, I think, doesn't get talked about enough. He tur- He basically turns the NBA, these NBA games into events. So what they do is they schedule, they they or he may, tries to make it relevant. So they do a few things with that. So what do they do? First, with the, with the Sunday slate of games, those games feature at least two of the following four players: Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, or Dr. J. So that that that's the first thing they they go with stars because the NBA at that time again was still finding its footing. So Ted Shaker and the CBS Sports guys say, all right, you know, we're going to we're going to focus on the stars. That's number one. Number two is they start turning the, the NBA games into events. They put they, they they put the NBA on before the Daytona 500, the Super Bowl. And, and CBS Sports could do that because they had everything at the time. They were probably the preeminent sp- uh, sports um television network at the time i mean espn was still was barely a year or two old usa network was still wasn't really a force at that time so that's the important thing they 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 offered those games as sort of i guess pre-game appetizers to big events like the like the daytona 500 and the third thing i should mention is they treat the games as entertainment they don't treat the games as just all right well there's a jump shot Scores down 48, 46, two minutes to go. They turn they turn the games into events. They they tr- they you know even from every, and that's everything from the introduction, which has this razzly dazzly computer graphics introduction, which at the time is truly inventive, but now looks a little rinky dink. They do it by hiring really good. I mean, uh, uh, they by hiring uh, folks like Pat O'Brien to offer this really irreverent personality driven halftime report. Which I think was which I think was extremely popular. They hire Tommy Heinsohn, who doesn't want to treat the games as straight up television. You know, he 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 tells them like you know treat this as a murder mystery. You know, offer clues, don't show everything. 
And they have they have a and CBS uses a director named Sandy Grossman who doesn't who doesn't just who, who shows the emotion of the games like he'll show Larry Bird waving a towel he'll sh- he'll show Michael Cooper crumpling to the floor after the the Rockets beat them in that in that great Western Conference Finals uh, series in '86. So so again that you are you are not appealing to diehards here you are you are making these games appealing to a broad audience and it worked it worked marvelously. Because the game, because the games were treated as theater, um, and they were treated as the, you weren't just plopped into a game. You were tre- the games were treated as well, almost like a news event. You know, Dick Stockton and Tommy Hines would come on, and they would tell you exactly what you needed to know. They would fill you in. So then you, you're so you're watching the game at home and like, okay, I get this. Like, there's the you know the Celtics have Bird, but they also have McHale and Parrish. Oh, that's interesting. So that was absolutely key. It was just, it was, again, it was all part of broadening the audience. And with CBS Sports, they could do just about, I'm sorry, with, with Ted Shaker and Sandy Grossman and, and, and all these men and women who worked on these NBA telecasts, they had free range because CBS Sports didn't really care. You know, the, the NBA wasn't a big entertainment property for them. It was, football was, was their bread and butter. So, so Ted Shaker and, and, all the, and Sandy Grossman and, and, and all of these men and women they could do whatever they wanted to. And they did. And it, and it worked great. Right. All right. Uh, Pete, it, it, it was a matter of time. We have to get into Michael Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I was a Knicks fan in the early nineties. So this is horrible, but I'll, well, I, I'll, I'll be right there with you, man. Um, <laughs> anyway, you know, David, I, I love this analogy where, you know, you, you've talked about, you talked about so far how, how David Stern and, you know, really, uh, envisioned the NBA as as a major entertainment mm-hmm. venue right. center, and and of course use the comparison to uh, Disney World yes. in the book, which I found fascinating. Mm-hmm. And as, as you say in the book, in in 1984, David Stern got his Mickey Mouse yep. in Michael Jordan. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what made Michael Jordan such a transcendent star? Well, I mean, obviously he can, he he could play. I mean that that was the first thing yeah. <laughs> he could just you know, he, he, he was he was amazing. I mean that he he I think Bob Ryan or Bill Simmons mentions you know he passes the eye test or he you know where if, if like anyone it, like if an alien went came down and saw Michael Jordan play they would just be amazed by him. But it wasn't just that. I mean he all Michael Jordan I think from the time he left the University of North Carolina I. I do think that he was a extremely, extremely shrewd and smart business person. He was somebody who knew exactly what he could do. He was someone who knew that the cameras were on. He knew what the media wanted. He knew he knew what every he knew what everyone wanted. Um, there's a great story that wasn't that wasn't I didn't get a chance to include in the book, but there was there was a at one point the NBA Entertainment uh, crew. Which was NBA, the NBA's uh, in-house video and highlights arm, were filming Michael Jordan for a for a piece on the golf on on the golf course. So they're driving around, and Michael Jordan is is like pointing to his chest, like pointing to his chest, and the producer is like, "What are you talking? What, what, what's this?" And Michael Jordan says, "Your mic isn't connected." So he knew exactly like what was expected of him. He knew what the stakes were. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think you have, so he was, so yeah, he had the savvy, he had the playing ability, but you also, but he also comes about at the right time. We mentioned before about how the NBA was perceived at the time. By the mid 1980s, you have these wave of popular black entertainers that are on the scene. 
with uh, folks like Eddie Murphy and Michael Michael Jackson, Bill Cosby, and Michael Jordan comes along right at that right at that time. So there's right. that point too. And the other thing too is he was just such a good looking dude. You know, there is there are so many there. Are, you know, he was just he. I mean, in David Halberstam's um, book on Michael Jordan, uh, playing for keeps. He he describes Michael Jordan as beautiful several times, like several mm-hmm. times. Hi, sweetie. How are you? Good. Okay. I'll, I'll see you soon. Okay, hon? All right. I love you. Bye. Um, that was my daughter. Um, so, yeah, Michael Jordan is described as being beautiful several times. And he was. There, there was – there's an anecdote in the book where when he was introduced as Gatorade's pitchman, there was a, there was a, a meeting at, uh, at Quaker Oats. And – all the women in the crowd went to the like were crowded in the front row just to get a just to get close to Michael Jordan because he was just so attractive. So you have you have that you have the style of play, which is great. You have he comes along at the perfect time. You have the fact that he is he is an attractive, charismatic man. And I'm trying to think, you you have those three things. He had style too. He had definitely you had know, style. The, yeah, the, I mean, the bald head even became huge. Yeah, I mean, he had a he had a, a kind of as you say, you know, in the book a little bit, a, a, almost a little rebellious streak, and in, mm-hmm. in that you know, this is I'm going to do things my way, and and I think that appealed to a lot of people. Right, but he was rebellious, but also he was he was strident he was he was stridently apolitical. Like you know, if, yeah. if you think about players before him who were great, Bill Russell was 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 really into black activist black activism at that time. He was outspoken. He was he was a, he was a trailblazer. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was not only you know he not, was you know pra- practiced was was a Muslim. That was not really to this day is a religion that I don't think a lot of people understand or find find pr- or or find um, or they find, they reject, which is foolish. But he also wasn't great with the media. He wasn't he wasn't a, he wasn't approachable. Michael Jordan was somebody who. You didn't really know his political beliefs. You didn't know that he, you know, he was just, he was just kind of, he was just someone, I think you could just assign whatever you wanted to, to him. Um, so if you're a kid, you see the bald head, you see the baggy shorts, you, you see the, you see the, the dunks that attracts you. If you're a, if you're a, if you're a basketball fan, um, you know, the style of play just, just takes you out of your seat. But there was nothing really objectionable to him. There wasn't anything that made you say, oh, you know, that Michael Jordan, uh, I don't. He was, I mean, aside from me, the bald head and the baggy shorts, he was very, he was very middle of the road. So that really worked well for him. There was nothing, you know, he never went, I don't think he ever really talked about, you know, how he felt about being, I mean, not that I could see in the research, but he didn't really reveal how he was feeling. He wasn't really someone who would talk on end about, how he felt being, you know, being young and being such a celebrity or being black in America. He was very much just Michael Jordan, the same way you talk about, you know, I don't know, like, uh, you know, a desk lamp or a cup like that's <laughs> just he's just there. OK, it's Michael Jordan. Right. So I, and, and I, I, I don't know. I suspect because I think Michael Jordan is extremely bright. I think he knows exactly I think he knows. The, I think he knew exactly how he wanted to be perceived. And there's another anecdote in the book. And again, Paul, cut me off if I'm rambling here. But, yeah, go ahead. But, great. But there's an anecdote in the book, I, I, which I, I was when I wrote it down. I was just, oh my god, this is great. And I think under, that I think that I think really 
reveals how aware Michael Jordan was of who he was and what his what his influence was. So in the late 1990s, the Bulls are wrapped or in the middle of their third three P. And Michael Jordan again, Michael Jordan now is probably, if not the biggest sports star in America, he might be the biggest star in America. So he's in Los Angeles filming on an off day, a commercial for Nike. And it was very hush hush. It was very, it was kept under wraps. It was actually filmed, I think, in the tunnel underneath the Great Western Forum. So Nike only has a, a very short period of time to get this commercial done, film him, get him out of there. So they film the commercial, they're getting him out of there, and of course, word gets out. There's a huge crowd. Michael, Michael, ah! So Jordan is with um, is with a gentleman named Scott Bedberry, who um, very pro- who's not, who is who is a very prominent Nike executive now, a very big uh, very big deal in business circles. Very nice guy. That's beside the point. Anyway, so Scott Bedberry <laughs> is with is with Michael Jordan, and Scott is in charge of getting him into the limousine to get him back to the hotel because like the time is ticking. And Jordan's agent was David Falk, who was who was very much business minded and knew what he was doing. So basically, if they go over time, like Nike is gonna is gonna be paying perhaps millions more to to have Michael Jordan's time. So anyway, time is really tight. So Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan is emerging from the tu- emerges from the tunnel. Michael, Michael, he goes in the crowd, starts signing autographs. Five minutes pass. Scott Bedberry is like, Mike, we have to go. Just a minute, Michael, Michael, keeps signing, keeps signing. Five more minutes pass. Mike Scott Bedberry at this point is like, yeah, we are against the clock. If we if we get him back late, we are screwed. Scott Berry, Scott Bedberry finally says, Michael, we have to go now. We we gotta go. So before going, so before leaving, Michael Jordan just gazes into the crowd for 20 seconds, 30 seconds, and then heads, heads back into the limousine. Limousine takes off. Scott Bedberry says, Michael, what was that about? Did you miss something? Did you forget something? What's going on? And Michael Jordan says, says, um, no, it's just that when, when I'm in a crowd, I want to make sure that someone gets a chance to look at me because they may not see, they may not see me again. I want to make sure that I maintain, I, I want to make sure that someone gets to see me. That, that that if I'm there, they they know that I'm there. That is a remarkably observant um, thing to say, and I think that shows just how aware Michael Jordan was of his impact and of his prominence. So really, David Stern had the perfect partner with um, for for his for his for his quest to fulfill the NBA's vision because I think Michael Jordan knew what what his marketability was and you know I, I think that is something that maybe doesn't get talked about enough just was just how aware he was um as a, as a celebrity and and i don't know he might he might be the first athlete to be aware of his role in the new media landscape Right, that's interesting. He it reminds me of the way you're describing it. His awareness, of, it, it's a different time, yeah. a different media, mm-hmm. but uh, of uh, Joe DiMaggio is yes. very much like that. Yeah, DiMaggio. Um, I mean, and that was that's who I was thinking. I mean, DiMaggio was the same way. I mean, you didn't really know much about him. He wasn't going to talk right. to many people, and he real. I think he he had the same the same great line about you know I I, I always try my best because it might be the first time someone seeing me play, right. and I right. you know I think Jordan understood that and very much. Jordan and DiMaggio post uh, sports career, I think, have the same sort of 
mysterioso profile. Like you know them, but you don't really know them. You know, yeah, right. I, I, you know. I mean, there's you know Gatorade, Michael. You exactly. know, you know the uh, Mr. Coffee DiMaggio, but mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah, and that's you know, and that's and again, that's one reason why. Yeah, I mean that you're exactly right. I mean there is there's an aura around them, and not too many people are going to pierce that for sure. Right. Uh, one thing I have to ask you about is kind of the the marriage between hip hop and uh, and hoops. Yes. Um, you know, and I think you know uh, Marvin Gaye wasn't he's, he wasn't a hip hop artist. Mm-hmm. He was you know mm-hmm. more R and B, but I think that was really. Um, you know, as you depict in the book, really kind of his legendary performance at the 1983 All-Star Game. And if anybody hasn't seen that, please watch yes. that after this. It's, it's beautiful. Please. Um, it was really a pivotal moment for the league. Mm-hmm. And even though it wasn't hip hop per se, I, I think, um, you know, it, it, it maybe started that pairing or was at least influential in that pairing between um I don't know what you want to call it, urban music or African-American music mm-hmm. and, and basketball. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to, to me that, that, that is the, that to me, I think is the pivotal moment in the NBA, in, in the creation of the NBA that we see today, because wow. here is, here is somebody who is performing a non-traditional rendition of basically a war song. I mean, it, I mean, let's call, let's call, let's call, let's call it, let's call it is what it is. So he, right. he's turning this, this, this song that we have just endured for, for ages into, into this soulful, almost danceable music. But what's more important about that is that it's representative of who is, who's playing the game at that moment. And it's mostly African Americans, mostly black men. So here, so to, so the NBA, I mean, didn't plan this. It was not something they they designed. But Marvin Gaye's rendition is an open admission, like, and, and again, it's completely coincidental. But it's an open, it's a inadvertent open admission, I guess, that this is who we are. This is and this is this is this is who we are. This is representative of the NBA. It's a, it is a sport that is going to do things differently. It's a sport that is embraces who is on the floor, meaning black men who are, who are, who are not kowtowing to the quote unquote traditional American values, what, however you want to define them. This is, this, this is going to, we are, we are different. We are going to, we are going to, we are, we are young. We are hip. We are cool. We are black. Deal with it. And that, from that point on, I think everything, the NBA turn rounds the corner and embraces itself as a as a quote unquote cool sport, and because again, if you look at it, if you look at it after that point in 1984, David Stern becomes commissioner. Okay, rap is starting to really make in is has already made inroads, huge inroads. The players are younger; they're embracing hip hop culture, they're embracing that music. The fans are embracing that mu- are embracing that music, and the NBA realizes that you know what to to appeal to the young fans. We want a court. We have. To, we are going to embrace this music. So that's why you see Kid and Play at NBA All Star Weekend. That's why you, you know. That's why you. That's why it it became it becomes like sort of this hip hop. The All Star. I'm sorry, All Star Game Weekend. Pardon me. Becomes sort of this hip hop hangout for every for music executives, artists, everybody. That anthem to me is is absolutely is absolutely crucial 
in the formation of the NBA that we see today. And whether you like the anthem or hate the anthem, and believe me, there are people who hate it, and they hated it then, they hate it now. That that is the that is the springboard for everything that for that is a springboard for the NBA that you see today, in in my opinion. Right. Um. All right, Pete. Well, I know I know you need to go soon, so I'll, I'll get you. I have one last question. Sure, I'll go get ahead. you out here. Sure. Um, let me just say uh, one last time. Pete's book is called From Hang Time to Prime Time, Business, Entertainment, and the Birth of the Modern Day MBA. Guys, I, I can't I can't recommend this book highly enough. I, I just, uh, you know, and uh, me as, as an amateur MBA historian just ate it up. But there's, there's stuff in here for everybody. If you're interested in the entertainment industry, if you're interested in hip hop, um, if you're interested in business in general and the growth of a business and, and how to go about that, uh, you know, this is a fascinating book. It's Pete interviewed over 100, 300 people for this project. And the breadth and and the depth of it is just remarkable. Um, so I definitely go out and, re- and get this book. Um, as I said, Pete, one last question I'd like to ask all my guests. What mm-hmm. is your all-time favorite sports book? Oh, geez. Oh, man. That is. I know. It's, I know. It's. I know it's tough to pick one. It is. I mean, oh. Oh boy. I mean, I'm looking at, I'm, I'm sitting here in my office and behind me, I have, you know, I have a, I have a floor to ceiling bookcase and I could probably just rattle off. Um, you know, I, I just, it's just stocked with great sports books. Um, uh, boy, that is a hell of a question. Ah, boy, you know, man, I, I think, I think my brain might explode with um <laughs> with this i mean seriously i mean well, it, we don't want that to happen <laughs> no I, I i i you know i i you know the book just came out so i'd like to savor 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 it for a little bit longer let me take a look here you know what i'm gonna go i'm gonna go a little offbeat here because i'm gonna go with the sports book that got me interested in sports books um i know that might be kind of a cop-out but no, i that's that's cool yeah i i think i but to me it, it's I want to go with what got me here. And to me, the, the best to me, my, so my choice is um, Xander Hollander's pro basketball handbook. All right. 1991. Oh, specific year. Okay. Yeah. Because that got me into basketball. That got me, I can't, you know, that, that I got that. I was just getting into basketball at the time and it was, so, and I, and I, and I, and I had, I was a baseball fan before, so I'd read the Xander Hollander pro baseball handbooks, which were which came out year after year. I think I read five or six of them, and then I read the pro basketball handbook, and that blew my mind. I the the, the writing in in those books, and I'm trying to think who who wrote. I I can't remember who wrote who wrote those who wrote who wrote the the chapter who wrote the the the, the scouting reports and the previews. But it just exploded with wit and insight and and color and it just it, it just I can't explain just how how influential those books were. They just they made me excited to read to read. They made me excited to read. I read that book until literally until it split in half. So the book was just. Mm. I mean, I read they, these were these for those who don't know these handbooks, which came out every year in the four major sports. They were they were an invaluable resource before the internet because there was nothing you could really find that had everything in one spot. 
So I read that book until it split in half, literally. And <laughs> I mean, I would actually read one half and read the other. And I think that's what really gave me a hard shove to learning about basketball or the NBA rather reading about basketball more reading, you know, reading, reading about it. Those books are just, even the baseball books too, are extremely influential to me. And it always bothers me when someone says, Oh, well, you know, Oh, you're reading, is this a sports book? Oh, you're reading a sports book. Well, you know, to, you know, for the eight-year-old kid who's reading those those Vander Hollander handbooks, or who's reading Matt Christopher, or who's reading <laughs> the sports pages, that's their introduction to reading. That's their that's their that is their launching pad. And some of and some of the best writing I've read, period, is from sports books. Like you, you're, you're gonna. I mean, I'm looking right here at my at my bookshelf. You're telling me that Roger Engel isn't isn't on par with some of the best nonfiction writers on the planet. You're telling me that, I don't know, I'm looking at Howard Bryan's shutout and, 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 um, um, oh, where is, where is Howard's other book? Um, um yeah. And you, you, know, you mentioned, you mentioned Halberstam. Yeah, I, Halberstam. Mean, I mean, a couple of his books. Yeah. And, I mean, Howard Bryan's the, yeah. uh, the, um, the heritage, like you're telling me those books don't cover big ideas and have eloquent writing and, make you see the world in a different way or, or expand your worldview. It, it is, there are so many there, you know, it's funny. I I've gotten, if you read the acknowledgements, I know you have, like, it kind of sounds like, it kind of sounds like a deathbed speech because I'm thanking like <laughs> everybody and their, and, and my, and their uncle, but there are so many, I mean, they're not, they're not, there are not only so many people who helped me get, get this book out. And I'm sure if you've written, you've written your own book and I'm dying to read it. Um, You've, you've, you know, there's, I mean, I'm sure you can say the same thing. There's so many people who helped you, yeah. but you know, but there are also so many books that just made me want to read. And so many of them are sports books and so many of them are just, are, are just aspirational models. I mean, I, I think if you're a journalism student or even if you're a fan of great writing, if you read David Halperson's books on, on the NBA, they're a masterclass on story structure, um, reporting. If you read Jeff, any of Jeff Perlman's books, they are a testament to just to just digging and finding and just finding the nugget. So, so yeah, I mean, it is, um, it really is. I can't, I mean, to me, sports books have, uh, have made me who I am for better or for worse. Um, and they, and they've, and not only that, they opened my mind to great reading, but they, they helped me branch off into other reading too. I mean, I don't just read sports books. I read as I read a pretty wide variety of things. And um, to me, I mean, that's the foundation. So for anyone who, who discounts sports books or, or discounts their value to a, an active, healthy reading appetite, I, I, I don't understand it. And I, I probably never will. Amen, my man. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> that's all I could say. Beautiful. Thank you. Well said. All right. Well, you got to go be a daddy, so I'm going to let you yeah. go, my friend. All right. Well, Paul, this was great. Thank you so much for uh, for the kind words. It, it truly means a lot, and for for having me on. This is this is a real treat. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It was a, a pleasure for me as well. All right, sir. Take care. All right. Take care, and good luck with the book. Thank you, sir. Yours as well.